Colossians chapter number one this morning, Colossians chapter one, and uh, we continue through our series through the book of Colossians here, and um, appreciate Pastor Caleb preaching last week and uh, laying out uh, verses five through verse number eight for us, and this morning we'll pick up in verse number 11 and begin to work through this again. I appreciate the work that's gone into that. You know, I think it's so important that when we come to uh, the text, the churches, it's very important, church, that we remember, churches can get bogged down very quickly into minutia. And we can get very focused on uh, the secondary and tertiary things that do not carry the weight of the gospel. Uh, We can get sidelined. And when I think of that, I think it's why we continually say to you over and over again, Let's keep the main things the plain things. And let's keep the plain things the main things. And let's constantly put them in front of us all the time. You know what? I, I think we can look through Scripture and we can find many uh, interesting things to study and we can wrestle on those things and we can pull on those. And I think there's good, there's good help in doing that. Um, and I think we ought to go to Scripture looking for what we don't understand. Um, how many of you read something in the Bible you didn't understand? Okay. Okay. Uh, my wife found a great analogy of this, and we kind of followed through in a book she was reading this week. But in the context of it, the, the idea is Moses before the burning bush. A burning bush that's not being consumed doesn't make sense to the natural mind. And he said if it was in the modern today, somebody would have just taken a picture of it and put it on uh, Instagram and gone on. You know, and it'd been, hey, this is interesting, watch this. And it would have just passed over it. Or maybe we would uh, be so distracted with what we've got going on that we don't pay any attention to it at all. And we walk right past it. But I think what we ought to do, and I think this is an analogy to reading the Scripture, is when we read a passage of Scripture that we don't fully understand, that we ought to do what Moses did with the burning bush, and that is draw close to it. Draw close into that passage of Scripture, take off our shoes, and understand we're on holy ground and say, Lord, teach us. What do we need to know about this passage of Scripture? And that's what's so important, in my opinion, of why we preach through a book of the Bible, is it keeps us and forces us to address text of Scripture uh, in the whole and in the context that God has revealed it to us. Um, And we walk through these verses of Scripture and we look at them, we have to examine them. What does this mean for us? How do we apply that to our daily life? And that's what we hope to do this morning. Last week, Pastor Caleb brought for us uh, just a beautiful picture of the celebration of the gospel and how the gospel is a fruit-bearing. It is going to all the world. It is fruit-bearing everywhere it goes. And not only that, a celebration of the gospel, but also those faithful ministers who have ministered the gospel to us. And what an encouragement. Paul, I think, has a very pastoral heart here as he's writing uh, to the church at Colossae and he's writing them. Though he's never visited there, he clearly has a burden for this people and a heart for them, and he's talking about the ministers that they have uh, on their behalf, and he said, you know, he just, I love that when he talks of Epaphras, he says he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And Paul, I think, is making a personal testimony here. He's a faithful minister of Christ. And what a, what a commendation that Paul gives him. Pastor Caleb pointed out last week for us that we hear the word of God, we've learned the truth, we understood it, it's been made known to us, and these are very natural means by which the gospel has come to us. 
Uh, it's not some kind of supernatural thing that we approach it as, and yet we see a supernatural work happening through natural means. That the supernatural work of God coming to us, and we can think anything in our world that we take for granted, ultimately is a supernatural work through so many natural means. And we take for granted the natural means of photosynthesis, and yet it's a supernatural work. We can tell you how it happens in science, but we don't know why it happens. God does the work. God gives the increase. And we see that we read the Word of God, we hear the Word of God, and then God gives illumination and enlightenment to our hearts as we read the Word of God and we understand it. The light of the gospel shines into us. And so we can rest in that. So I want to read the text this morning for us, and we're going to begin in verse number 9. We'll read down through the end of verse 11, and we'll read this together, then we'll pray, and we'll jump into this passage of Scripture. Verse number 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Join me in prayer as we begin. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to what we've read or to what we've heard this morning already from the report uh, of the work you're doing in another country, another part of the world that most of us have never visited. And yet, Lord, you're doing a work there of raising up men and women for your glory to accomplish your work, and Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. And then, Lord, we ask you, Father, that you would do that work in us today, do a work in us and through us, that we could hear from you today, or we do not need to hear man's opinion, we need to see the word of God lifted up before us today. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it all, Amen. It is Christ in you and you in Christ that allows your works, my works, to bring glory to God, and that is the ultimate end of man. But it is only Christ in us that allows us to do that work. It is not us doing it on our own. We only can accomplish things that are pleasing to God because Christ is in us and working through us. And Paul is writing to this church who is under the influence of an infantile heresy, but a heresy nonetheless, that said that the means of spiritual growth and awakening was through physical deprivation or intellectual exaltation. That if somehow or another we can set ourselves apart from things that we enjoy... And there was two sides of this heresy. One had the spirit of asceticism where they would separate themselves into uh, fasting and to uh, even uh, a type of monastic living. And others on the other side of this heresy were full-on indulgence. And they thought they could indulge themselves in any way they wanted to. And they saw both of those indulgences as a means to enlightenment. Uh, this is a wrong way of thinking that somehow or another only people who have experienced what I've experienced or gone through what I've gone through can understand like I understand. The fact is truth is open to everyone to understand. And it is only through the gospel that we fully understand the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that we understand the gospel in the first place. They would have the thinking that if you push through like I have done so, then you can be enough just like 
Jesus became enough. And in that little wording here, there is a great heresy. Jesus didn't become enough. He always has been enough. Jesus is not our example of how to become better. He is the one that came to satisfy our sin debt and to make us acceptable with God. And so Jesus always has been God. He always will be God. He was not becoming enough. He was the sufficient sacrifice. He is ever interceding on our behalf today. They, in essence, saw growth and knowledge as a means to acquire what Christ has, and rather than Christ being the end and the means of all things. And this whole evidence of this, and we, we haven't got into the poetry of this chapter yet, but when we get into the poetry, we're going to see that Christ is all in all, that he is everything, and he gets lifted up above all things, and we see him as not only uh, the source of our strength, but he is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is everything in between. And so the, his, the heresy of Colossae was using spiritual words, but changing the meaning or implication. And we find that happening today. Uh, when someone tells you that they're saved, you need to know what that means. And I hear people tell me, well, yeah, I, I got saved. And well, what do you mean by that? And I've had people tell me, well, I was in a car accident and God delivered me from it. That's not being saved. That's not being born again. You see, it's, it's not a, a terminology that means that you've been delivered, and, and we understand that that name, care, that word can have several meanings, but when we're talking about in the context of the gospel, we mean somebody who understood they were a sinner, came to a realization of their sinfulness before a holy God, and they called out in humble faith, faith in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. And when we, we see that taking place, it's the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that does that work. And we see that being born again. It was said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. They were using words like knowledge and wisdom and perfect and understanding, and yet they had different uh, implications to these words. Their knowledge was a higher knowledge for an elite group of people up here who could get it, and not all the base people down here. They couldn't have this knowledge they had a wisdom that was above everybody else's wisdom. They had a perfection that they saw themselves as reaching to a higher level of understanding than other people. Paul declares uh, that those who are not found, that, that th these are not found, rather, through some kind of cultish or mystical religious uh, production, but rather they are wrapped up and fully found in Christ. That knowledge and understanding and perfection, and the word perfection, when you see it in your Bible, is the idea of maturity, that we've grown into maturity. All of that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we open the text in verse number 9, and we see these words, and so. And so. Uh, the King James, I love the, the wording here in this one. He says, for this cause. For this cause, what cause is he referring to? He's referring to what he's already unpacked in this chapter before. And so, and so, in light of what we've already laid out for you, this is the reality here. And what did he lay out for them? Because you are fruit-bearing Christians. The gospel has taken root in you. You are saints. You've been set apart in Christ. This is what Christ has done in you and what he's doing through you. And because you have the gospel, the faith, the hope, the love that the gospel portrays, and we saw a few weeks ago how that faith Faith, hope, and love are the, the, the shorthand of gospel terminology that we have been made right in Christ in faith, hope, and love. And because you have been invested in by faithful ministers, Paul says, and so what? And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. 
He said, we are praying for you. Now, I, I think if we're not careful, we can cheapen the word prayer and that we say that a lot to one another, I'm praying for you. And we don't really mean that we're praying for them. We mean have a nice day. And I think that's a dangerous thing to get drifting into that flippancy with it. But let us be truly praying for one. Paul is praying for them. He is praying and his heart's desire is praying. William Barclay made the statement, he said, so often it happens that in prayer we are really saying, thy will be changed, when we ought to be saying, thy will be done. We pray, church, not in order to escape life, but in order to better to be able to meet life. That God oftentimes does and can change circumstances. But if you know, if you had opportunity this morning to somehow or another write a prayer request on a card and put it in a time machine and send it back to the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul is going to pray for your prayer request, what would you put on that card? And what would we ask Paul to pray for? And I think too often we would ask him to pray for things that are not the main things but are the secondary and tertiary things. Well, I got an interview this week. Can you pray that goes well? That's not a bad thing to pray for. As a matter of fact, physical things are not bad to pray for. Paul asked for his circumstance to be changed. He had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked on three occasions for God to remove that thorn of the flesh, and God chose not to do it. But here Paul has an opportunity to pray for Colossae, and he's not praying for just the physical needs. He's also not just praying for those who are hurting. Now, this is a healthy group of people. Paul's demonstrating wisdom that prayer is not for the sick, only for the sick and backslidden, but it is for the healthy and the growing. And I, I think we need to see that prayer is for those that are in this room this morning. Not just prayer from your lips, but prayer for one another and prayer what Paul is going to pray for them that we'll see in just a moment. Our greatest resource is prayer. And yet we fail to, to, to bathe our strong and our healthy with prayer, as well as often our sick and infirm, that we ought to be doing both, praying for both the sick, praying for both the healthy, because ultimately what we need is we need what Paul is praying for, and that is clear understanding in the will of God. Paul is praying this. Someone said this, and I love this quote, and leadership is in poor spiritual shape when we put more confidence in our planning than in our praying. See, we can, in our highly pragmatic world that we live in today, we can put together our spreadsheets and we can put together our graphs and we can set up our schedules and we can do all of the things that we do and I'm not against any of those things. We can plan and we can put them in place and I thank God uh, for all the organizational planning that is necessary there to help us measure where we're at and see where we are but ultimately all of that is in vain if we're not seeking God's face in it because ultimately all of our studying all of our planning will come to not if God is not doing the work that only God can do. And we must rest in that, that he is the one doing that work. And, and we'll see at the end of this that it gives us a freedom and a joy when we can see it as the work of God and not the work of our hands. So, he said, I'm praying and desiring. The word here is asking and uh, he says, and so from the day I heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
He said, I pray and I'm asking. These two words are separated out a little bit. We have two different words here. The idea of pray is the idea of worshipful intercession. And then desire or, or asking is the idea of pleading and begging. It's, it's something that goes beyond just, hey, we're praying for these things. But Paul had a hunger to see this happen. And he was going intentionally to the only one who could make it happen. And he's saying, God, I'm desiring that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will. I hunger for that within my soul. This is not a one-time request either. This is the asking and keep on asking. Paul's saying, I'm asking regularly every time I think of you. Uh, we have not ceased to pray for you, he said. We are continuing to pour out this request over and over and over again. It's an ongoing prayer that went past his lips and down into his heart that did not end with just, I'm asking, but I'm desiring that this to be the case. He's asking, goes beyond worship to pleading with God on this behalf. If our desires this morning, if our desires that are in our heart were only what we prayed for, what would we pray for this morning? If the desires of our heart could be put on a list and that's what we had to pray for this week, what would be truly what we pray for? Are our desires in line with God's desires? And I think that's the beauty of prayer is that as I pray, my heart aligns with the heart of God. And my desires become his desires. It was ongoing groaning for those believers at Colossae. It was a hunger to see them develop in their walk with the Lord and their knowledge of his will. In verse number 29 of chapter 1, look what he says, and this is the end of this chapter we're in. He said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I toil, I'm struggling. The word here is agonizing. He is agonizing over this word. He has a hunger and a desire to see this come to pass. Verse number 1 of chapter 2, he said, I want you to know how greatly a struggle I have for you and those of Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is Paul's earnest desire to see this fruit be born in their life. He said, I'm praying and I desire. He said, what is he desiring? Look what he says in verse number nine. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he said, what do I desire for you? Well, Paul, uh, uh, what, what are you going to pray for us for? What are you praying for the church at Colossae? Well, that they may be filled with all the money that they desire. Well, they may be filled with their best life now. And we have a wrong view of the gospel when all of our prayers are only about making the present right instead of having our hearts lined up with the will of God. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with the will of God, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would know him. And by the way, this is not something Paul is asking for them to do. He's something that he's asking to be done to them. The, the motion of the action here is that Paul is saying, I'm praying that it would be filling you up, that the knowledge of God's will would fill you up from the inside out, that it would flow through you. Paul claims that all of them could do this and be filled with the knowledge. All of them could be. And this flies in the face of the heresy that's being taught. 
They were being taught that only the elite could have this knowledge and only the elite could one day become like Christ. And Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm praying that all of the saints could be filled up with the knowledge of the will of God, that all the saints would have understanding in God's purposes and his plans and they would have this to work through them mightily. And he's praying this is the case and so he's flying in the face. It's not just the elite class of people, but it is saved sinners who have a wonderful savior that does a work in them that he might do a work through them. The same word for knowledge here is what these Gnostics were running around saying this is an elite information. He said, no, I'm praying that all of you would be filled with knowledge. So it's not just available to this tier of people that they had divided up, but it is every person. You see, this morning as we pray for one another, may our prayer be that each other is filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Moms and dads, you want a prayer for your children? Here's a prayer for your children. Pray for them that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And it's not just Paul saying this, one person can have this, but all could have it. It's available to us through the work of the Spirit of God. And by the way, I think friends ought to pray that for friends. Husbands ought to pray that for wives, and wives ought to pray that for husbands. How it would change how we interact with one another if we would stop going and praying for God to fix the behavior of someone and start praying for God to work in the heart of someone. And too often is we want to pray for somebody who's done us wrong, and our prayers are filled with, well, I wish they would stop doing that, God. God, get them to stop behaving that way. And ultimately, what we're praying then is for them to be conformed to our will, not be conformed to his will. And I jokingly told the first service, my wife and I, we don't have arguments, we have heated fellowship. And um, some of you guys have that too, I can tell. But in, in our times of heated fellowship, I've left the moment and it's just like, there's no use talking anymore, I'm not getting anywhere. And she usually comes to that conclusion a lot sooner than I do. Uh, but she's like, and I have to leave the room. And I, I, I remember on more than one occasion, kneeling down after the anger has cooled a bit and start praying. Now, the anger, had, the anger level had dropped, but the self-righteousness was still at a very high level. And uh, began to pray. And God, I don't understand why she doesn't understand. And God, open, help her understand this. And and the longer I pray, the more I begin to see that it is my pride and my arrogance, and it is the gift of God's grace that grants me repentance for my sin in that moment, and we're able to make it right. And the same has been the case on both of our occasions. Here's the thing. We so often want to fix things. And Paul says, I'm not necessarily trying to fix your behavior as I am trying to change the heart. And when we pray for one another, let's pray for the spiritual growth of one another, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. Pastors should pray for people. Well, Lord, help them to understand. Fill in the blank. And we could talk of all the things that pastors want people to do. But ultimately, I don't want you to be filled with the knowledge of my will for you. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will for you. That you would know his will 
and you could be obedient to his will. And, and let me say this, not only should it be pastors praying for people, they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but people ought to pray for the pastors, they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. God, give them wisdom. God, give them understanding. God, grant them repentance when they come short. And pray that they would understand the will of God on all of these things. It is pastors to people and people to pastors. It is fathers to children. Fathers, pray for your children that they would know the will of God and have the power to do the will of God through the Spirit of God because that ultimately ought to be the hunger that we have for them. But let me say, not only is it fathers praying for children, but it's children praying for their fathers. It's not only mothers praying for their children. Yes, do we need praying mothers, but we also need children who pray for the mom. It's on both directions, and we ought to be teaching our children that they have access to the Father to intercede for us. And so we see Paul praying for this spiritual desire. He said, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. It is him that we need to be filled with. It is his purpose that we are filled with. We don't need growth or experience in a new area, but we are a teaching of some side. We need growth in the knowledge we have been given of Christ. It is exploring what Christ is and who Christ is. It's the whole of Christianity. We're not looking for something new, but we're looking for more of the same. And it's letting the implications of the gospel spread through my life. And too often we have taken the gospel as just a starting point. Well, I believe the gospel, and I understand the gospel, Pastor. I mean, you know, I was a sinner, and Jesus had pity on me and came down and saved me. And there is a sense in which God has been loving and compassionate to us. And he has come and lovingly redeemed us to himself. But make no mistake, the gospel is not about your glory. It's about his glory. He came down in spite of you and called you to himself. And for his glory, he put on display the redemption of wicked sinners such as us. This is what he's doing through the gospel. And we say, well, I understand the gospel, Pastor. You know, I understand that it is through the death, burial, and resurrection that we have life in Jesus Christ. But how's that going to fix my marriage? How's that going to deal with my children? How's it going to fix my in-laws? How's my boss going to get better? How's my friends going to get better? How are my coworkers going to respond differently? Pastor, do you even know my parents? How's that going to work? How are my siblings going to act better? You see, the gospel this morning is not our launching point. It is the point. The gospel is the point of it all. You see, what is the gospel? The gospel says, I see myself as a sinner, and I love how Paul Tripp says this. He said, I see myself as a sinner, not a grace graduate. Not someone who is step beyond the need of grace, but that every day I'm in need of grace, and when I understand I'm in need of grace, then I'm going to respond to you in a different way than if I think I don't need grace anymore. Because if I don't need grace, it's just you people that need grace. Then let me tell you how to get enlightened like I have been. And we can use Christ to promote self, or I can join you when you've done wrong and say, you sinned against me? Let me tell you what I've sinned against him. And what he did when I sinned against him, he gave grace, and he offered more grace. He said, preacher, when do we preach the gospel to our family? The best time to preach the gospel to your family is anytime somebody sins. And I'm sure if your family's like mine, you have plenty of opportunity to preach the gospel in your family. 
Because every time someone does wrong, the goal is not to tell your children, we don't behave like that. Do you know your last name? The goal is not in that moment to tell them uh, what reasons they ought to stand up on their moral hind legs and do better. But the goal is, in yourself, you can't love your sister like you should. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will do a work in you and allow you to love her. And so let's go back and see what Jesus did for your sin. And when you go back to that, it changes the whole perspective of the whole thing. You see, the gospel tells me that only through Christ can I see fruit. And so then, if I can only see fruit through Christ, the only way anybody else is going to change is through Christ. That's the only hope we have. We see ourselves as sinners in need of the gospel and still in need of the gospel. And let me just say in our Western world, as we consider the moralism that we have set up if we're not careful, especially in conservative evangelical Christians, If we look at this world and we're shocked that sinners sin, folks, it shouldn't shock us that sinners sin. That's what sinners do by nature. And so when we see this world growing more dark and more evil as she goes along, we can rest that God told us that was the game plan in the first place. That sinners are going to increase in sinning. And guess what? The same answer that redeemed a rotten sinner like me is the answer that will redeem a sinner out there doing anything else that is a reprobation to the holy God. God's gospel changes them. He said, Pastor, I don't understand how that happens. And guess what? That's the mystery of the gospel. I don't understand how it works, but somehow or another, the light of the gospel shines in their heart, and there's an awakening, and then we see fruit bearing, and then we see ministers, and we see that's the gospel. And guess what? When we stand back, we don't say, hey, look what we did. We have to stand back and say, look what God did. Because God does that work. God is infinite and we are finite. We will always be growing in what we truly possess today. I possess everything that God has given me to inherit through Jesus. It is mine. He secured it through his spirit. We are joint heirs with Christ. And I'm going to spend eternity unpacking that gift. That's an amazing thought. We think we... When we think we can sum up the gospel quickly, we think we've got a handle on it. Warren Wiersbe said, when you think you've got a handle on it, you're like the college student who had to write a 10-page paper, and he entitled it, The History of the Universe. You can't write a paper on the history of this universe in 10 pages, and nor can we sum up the gospel in a 30-minute sermon, or yay, in a 60, 70, 80-year life. We're going to be exploring the gospel for eternity. And what a joy it is to unpack the riches of his grace. Verse number nine, he says, and I want you to be filled with the knowledge. He said, I want you to be filled up with it. To be filled with something, what does it mean to be filled? The, the word uh, to be filled, if, if I said to you that person is filled with anger, what do we mean by that? We mean that person is controlled by anger. They're just in a rage because they're filled with anger and it, it dictates how they behave. It dictates how they respond. And, and when we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, the knowledge of God's will and understanding and wisdom dictates how we respond. 
It works out through us. Paul wanted us to be controlled by the knowledge of God's will. We know what God's will is because of the word of God. This is spiritual intelligence. It is not found through mystical pursuits or physical fasting or religious observance. It is found by walking daily in his word, growing in the knowledge of his will by growing in the word of God. And let me point you again to the word of God. As we do week in and week out, it is the word of God that is our life source. It is the word of God that transforms us. We, we're told in this text, and it's one of the reasons we as a church have started reading through the Bible together to start our services off, because we're to give attendance to reading. We're to make reading a, a priority, and he says at the very end of this book, he said, hey, make sure you send this book over to the other church, and then get the book that I sent to them, and read them publicly. And so we read the Word of God, but not only public reading of Scripture, but private reading of Scripture, and we are blessed with a multitude of tools to allow us to read the Word of God. How many of you use an audible, uh, an audio book format of the Bible? Anybody do that? And I, I would challenge you. It's another way to have another stream of the Word of God into your life, of letting the Word of God be read to you, even as you drive down the road or you're getting ready in the morning, adding the Word of God to your life. Let it be read to us. Let us read the Word of God. Not only that, but then in 128, he tells us that preaching and teaching are a part of the word of God coming into us. And we, we need to have a priority of being under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Of hearing the word of God taught and preached. And again, we live in a day where we have wonderful tools that allow us to bring in teaching and preaching on a regular basis into our world. And so I, I would challenge you to do that. And one of my favorites here is in 316 when he says that we sing the word of God. That as we sing the truths of God's word, we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly. And they settle down into our soul because we sing about them. That's why it's so important that we sing doctrinally driven songs. And we have them sink down into our soul. And I, I can go back in my mind. I thank God for the rich heritage of gospel music that I grew up under. I could sing probably between now and the time I go to bed without ever opening a book. Just the songs that are stuck into your mind, and you sing one after another, after another, after another, and those songs settle down in our soul. Let that be the case. To let singing of the Word of God drive the Word of God deeper into our hearts. As we read, we hear, we meditate upon the Word of God, the Spirit of God illuminates our hearts. Many times we'll hear emotional pleas in prayer and in worship services. We'll hear things like, Lord, we really want to experience you today. Lord, we really want to know you. Lord, we want to feel your presence. And we talk of these things, and I don't challenge necessarily the sincerity of the desire. But let me say this. If we are praying those things and we are claiming those things, but we're not in the word of God, there's a disconnect somewhere. Because if we desire to know God, we will know him through his word. That's how we know him. And so Paul says, I want you to know my, the will of God and know that through the word of God. So he said, I want you to know the knowledge, wisdom, understanding. He is praying for an opening of spiritual understanding that the hearer of the word of God uh, would have fruitful ministers, from fruitful ministers rather, it would be received and believed. And then in verse 10, it would be walked out. So hear the message Believe the message, receive that, and let it be walked out. The unlocking of the mind is a gift from God, not the act of the will. Until you admit that you can't understand it on your own, you won't understand it. 
Man is not going to find God by his intellect. It is when we admit that we can't that then he opens up our eyes and shows us. And so he says, verse number 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He said, I want you to know so that you could put into action what you know to walk worthy. These people were being lied to about what it meant to walk worthy. They said, if you want to walk worthy, then no marriage and no meats and no, uh, then take stringent fast and observe holy days or no enjoyment. Or if you want to walk worthy and you want to experience God, just give all that up and go to complete indulgence. And these are not the means of walking worthy. To grow in the knowledge is not information separated from action, but it is learning so that we may walk worthy. You see, th- these people were being told that if you deny all these things... That somehow or another, you will then walk worthy. And it's the opposite of what it should be in our life. Let, let Let me give you this. So as to walk worthy. In order that you might walk worthy. What is he saying? The heresy they were teaching said this. If you do these things, you will acquire knowledge and will become enlightened. And so what are they starting with? They're starting with do, know, be. Do these things, you'll acquire knowledge, and you'll become something you've never been before. And that is so often the whole process of human endeavors is do, no be. And the opposite is what the gospel teaches us. Be, no do. Be what? Saints. Can you do anything to do that? No. Christ did the work in you to make you a saint. We are saints in Christ, not by our actions, but by his choice and calling us to himself and the regenerated work that took place inside of us. And we're not saints because of what we do. We're saints of what he's called us to be. And through the finished work of Christ, we are saints. And now we grow in knowledge. And why do we grow in knowledge? That we might do what we're supposed to do. And each of these things are empowered by the Spirit of God. None of these things are apart from the Spirit of God. If you ever think that you've grown in knowledge to a point that you don't need church and you don't need scripture, you don't need prayer and you don't need fellowship, you've not grown in knowledge, you've grown in pride. Because regardless of how long you've been in church and regardless of how much Bible you know, you need the community of saints around you. You need the word of God taught before you. We need the fellowship of people around you. We need prayer for one another. So we walk in a manner that is wordy. Paul goes on in this chapter to demonstrate That the idea is not asceticism, and it's not indulgence. It's not looking for what I should deny myself from so that I can be a better Christian, or what I should indulge in because it doesn't matter what you do. That's a false paradigm altogether. Actually, the light that we've been given to walk in, uh, I'm in this light of our walk, is informed by Christ and is pleasing to him based upon our knowledge of God. We will not find God in self-denial or in self-indulgence, but in knowing God, uh, but, but knowing God rather will inform where I should deny myself and how I should enjoy physical things. It is the knowledge of his will that tells me what I should say no to and what I should say yes to. And there's a wonderful benefit in that because it frees my conscience to richly enjoy what God has blessed me with. And some were so afraid to even enjoy having a food to eat because their conscience was bound not by the knowledge of God's will, but by the knowledge of these men's asceticism. And yet also on the other side, 
it'll set up boundaries. And let me make something very clear. We ought to have boundaries around us. And we in this Western culture, and especially in conservative Christianity, we have boundaries and we say, that's right and that's wrong. But these boundaries in and of themselves is not my salvation. These will never save me. It is the riches of God's grace that saves me. And these boundaries come out of a knowledge of God's will that I set boundaries upon me. Those boundaries are not oppressive. They're rejoicing in what God has done. And he even says that we do so with joy. So all the things we do should be informed by who Christ is. Then finally, verse 11, strengthen with all might. All might, verse number 11, he said, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He said, strengthen, lift it up, empowered to do this work. Again, he says, you've been given all power. That's in contrast to what the heresy was saying is that no power is only limited for certain people. But all the saints can have all the knowledge and all the power to accomplish the work that God has called us all to do. So all areas of our life are included and all areas are satisfied in Christ. It is in Christ that we find it. He said, I want you to have all patience, all long-suffering, with joy, to pursue the, to pursue the purpose and enlightenment on our own will rob us joy. When we have a do-no-be mentality, it leaves us in a great frustration. One of the greatest lies of this world is looking at our young people and saying, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. Don't put that on our kids. Be what God has called you and made you to be. And rest in the knowledge of his will. Because when you are filled with the knowledge of his will, with wisdom and understanding, he will guide you in the steps of the life that you're taking. Not this open-endedness of like, what do I do? I can do anything? I reminded the boy and the dad that were having the discussion. The, the dad looked at the son and said, son... When Abraham Lincoln was your age, he was splitting a cord of wood every morning, and he was building a split rail fence, and he said, you're sitting here playing video games on the computer. And he goes, well, that's funny, Dad. When he was your age, he was president of the United States. <laughs> that puts a pressure on us to do these things that we're not called to do. But when we are centered on the will of God, it is amazing and uncanny of how God directs our path, being filled with the will of God. Knowing his purpose, so then the power of God that we've been given to do the work of God, it's not Thor's hammer that only the worthy can wield, but it is the walking, working rather of the Spirit inside every believer that produces Christ-likeness and regeneration and allows us to be like Christ to those around us. It is a supernatural, grace-filled lives that all believers can enjoy by his grace and power through the transformation of the word of God. So you can do the work of ministry. And I told you at the very beginning, it is Christ in you and you in Christ that allows you to accomplish the work of God for his glory. And it is only through that that you can Years ago when we first moved to Ohio, we had a little outbuilding, and in that outbuilding I built a study prayer room to go to, and I was framing it up myself, and um, my son, TJ, he's 17 now, but he was just a little guy, he's about three years old, and he came out there, I want to help you, Dad, I want to help you, 
And dads, you're all very aware of the fact that three-year-olds don't help us do much of anything, right? Um, and I'm sure probably my first inclination was, now I want you to go inside where my mom's at. It's too dangerous out here, buddy. But for some reason, I said, okay, buddy, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to boom it. And I was driving things with a hammer and a nail. He goes, I want to boom it, Dad. And so he picked up the hammer, and the hammer is almost too heavy for him. But he's got the hammer in his hand. I'm like, okay, buddy. And if I remember right, the first time, he wanted to do it himself. And I gave him a 10-penny nail, a 20-ounce hammer. Good luck, right? And he's got that, and he's trying to boom it. And I remember him trying to line that thing up and tap it, and he's, you know, he's all over the place here. I want to boom it, Dad. And I said, well, let me help you, buddy. You mind? And he said, you can help me. And I remember putting my hand around his hand and covering his hand with my hand over that nail. And we began to drive that nail together. And he'd pull back, and we'd drive that thing in and drive that thing in, and he didn't have the strength to boom it. But as soon as we got that nail drived in, and it took us far longer than it should have, he ran out of that shed, ran inside. Mama, I helped Daddy. I boomed it, Mama. He was so wound up that he had to do something. And friend, there's an analogy in there of what it means to do gospel ministry. Because we go to God in our weakness and in our brokenness, and we say, God, I really want to boom it. But I can't. And it is Christ in me, and Christ, me in Christ, and we do the work of ministry. And when we're done, we say, man, look what God did. As we get older, we think, man, look, I got to do ministry. Yeah, I did, but actually God did the work. But isn't it amazing that in the wonderful wisdom of God, he allows us to be a part of the work that he brings us into the fellowship. Thanking God for the joy of ministering to his people, but only by his grace and in his power. And you get to do that this week to one another. And to the people outside this church, may God give us grace to be obedient. Father, we thank you.